Hi everyone, it's Guillaume from Startup Basecamp. Welcome to the Tech for Climate podcast. During the show, you will have the opportunity to meet the best climate tech founders, investors, and experts from both Silicon Valley and around the globe. They will share with you their stories and personal journeys into this growing and exciting industry, giving you some insight into the ecosystems that help you to take part in the fight against climate change and benefit from the opportunities it can represent podcast is divided in two small interviews. During the first part, you will get to know our speakers, their perspectives on the climate crisis and how climate tech is changing the game. Second part of the discussion will be for members of our community who will learn the speaker's secret sauce on how to and share with you their unique expertise on topics such as fundraising, management, strategy and so on to help you to become a better leader in your field. So before we start, I would like to quickly share what we are doing at Startup Basecamp to support climate tech founders in accessing resources and gaining visibility with investors they seek. Our initiatives include a membership-based community platform offering access to a dedicated Slack group with a growing number of founders, experts and investors from around the world and a series of exclusive content such as interviews, weekly job listings, events, and our quarterly online pitch of night opportunity. But more than a place where you can learn, exchange, and grow, we are building a matchmaking service to facilitate connections between our members and top investors and experts in the field. And soon, alongside with other top investors, we will be launching a small fund to co-invest in the growth and acceleration of our members. Finally, all of this is possible because of your support and donations. We are a small self-funded team and we want you to be part of this collective movement against climate change. So please share one episode with a friend and subscribe to the channels. As an added bonus, we will plant a tree for each of our subscribers each time we reach 1,000 new fans or donors. Do not hesitate to connect with me via social media or email guillaume at Startup Basecamp. Thanks a lot for listening. I hope to get in touch with you soon. And now, let's go for the show. Hi, everyone. In today's episode, we are speaking with Christian Hernandez, partner and co-founder at 2150. The fund is considered the largest EU-UK fund focused on sustainability of the built environment. They support and back mission-driven tech entrepreneurs who are solving some of the largest problems facing the planet today and focus on the full stack of the urban environment where most of the world's CO2 emissions and resource waste are arising. I was super excited to have Christian on the show, a self-described geek who started coding at 12 years old back in 1993. He's also a serial and successful VC and a dad of an upcoming astrobiologist amongst two other incredible kids. Christian got an MBA at Wharton, worked during the early days of Microsoft, Facebook, was even head of new markets at Google and launched a 250 million dollar fund with White Star Capital. Finally, he co-founded 2150 to invest in and support early stage tech founders who are building the world of 2150. 
In this episode, Christian will share his extensive knowledge of the built environment, his challenges, and the tech which can be deployed today to have a direct impact on climate change. Then he will cover in detail how they select and support founders and how they measure the impact that they base their investment decision on. He will go on to highlight underdog areas in the urban environment in which he sees exciting potential for investments, growth and impact. Following that, Christian will share his view on the climate crisis today and how you can be involved in the growing climate tech movement. The second part of the show, Christian will give his secret sauce for founders looking to fundraise and pitch investors successfully. Lastly, Christian will cover how he tackles challenges to maintain a healthy work-life balance and share a few inspiring authors for climate tech founders. Christian, welcome to the show. Hi, Christian. Welcome to the Tech for Climate podcast. I'm super happy to have you here with us. I believe it's going to be a, a great opportunity to refresh, quote unquote, your story and learn more about uh, what you guys are up to with uh, 2150. So welcome to the show. Good to be here. Thanks for having me. So before we start, as usual, could you give us a 30 second introduction about 2150? Yeah, so 30, 2150 is um, Europe's uh, largest fund focused on sustainability of the built environment. That was less than 30 seconds. So fantastic. Thank you so much. <laughs> so let's start from the top. Can you tell us a bit more about your personal story and background? Uh, what are you passionate about? I mean, what do you do besides working and supporting and investing in founders? What makes you feel inspired or like your best self? I mean, who is Christian? It's <laughs> a deep question to kick things off. Um, so, I mean, I think the, the easiest way to describe me is uh, I've always been a geek. I, uh, I started coding on my dad's Commodore 64 when I was 12 on basic. Um, while I didn't study computer science as a degree, I did teach myself how to code HTML back in 1993. I think my first website was launched in, uh, in, in 94. It's still on the way back web. Um, it's pretty, pretty scary to go back and look at it. <laughs> um, and, uh, and, and through that, ended up in, in technology as my work. And I got to ride a number of tech waves um, in my professional life, um, big data in the 90s with a company that was, that's now famous again for Bitcoin called MicroStrategy, um, then uh, early days of mobile at Microsoft, and then at Google when we launched the first versions of Java for Google Search and Google Maps on Nokia's and Blackberries, and then early days of social, um, helping to launch Facebook in Europe um, back in 2009 when MySpace was actually still bigger when I joined the company. So yeah, so I ended up stumbling into a career in tech. Um, and, and I think the personal side of me is also a geek. You know, I, I love learning about science and technology. I think the joke at my house is that on Friday when the new scientist uh, latest edition arrives, my wife, my son and I all fight for who's gonna read it first. Um, we, uh, my wife's actually gone back to school to get a PhD in neuroscience. So this, my house is full on scientific now. Uh, and my son wants to be an astrobiologist, which I had no idea what that even was. Effectively, the biology of aliens. Um, so, okay. yeah, so geek geekiness permeates to the rest of the family. Um, on the personal side, I have three kids. So my time is uh, taken up by uh, runs to the football pitches or to um, events during the weekend. 
but I do try to get out and, and, and uh, like my, my sport growing up and that I still do now is, is horseback riding. So I, I keep a horse out in, the, in, in Surrey. So I drive down there. During lockdown, interestingly, if you owned a horse, you were allowed to go visit it and ride because it was animal safety. So that kept me sane during, during COVID. Um, and, uh, and reading. I mean, I think I, I, my vacations are measured, good vacations are measured by how many books I got to read because it means I had this, the space and the calmness to actually read through books from, I always try to do like one historical, one scientific, one future, uh, science fiction, one future, future thinking. Um, so that's kind of a bit of summary about me. And then now with, with 2150, right, I spend my days thinking about how can we make sure that the world of 2150 becomes a reality uh, and what technologies can we back and evaluating amazing founders working on them. Um, it's an amazing job. And the fact that people pay me for it is even better. <laughs> That's exciting. And uh, we'll, we'll dive into, uh, into 2150 a little bit later to the, into the interview. But tell us a bit about, uh, you know, you touch up uh, a little bit on those uh, work experience, but I mean, what about you know this life and work experience that you had uh, before 2150? I mean, what did you learn during that journey that gave you, in a way, an edge to start the, the, the firm? Uh, interesting question. Uh, in, at Google, not at Microsoft, Microsoft is very hierarchical, but at Google and, uh, and Facebook, I learned that a young 20-something-year-old can outrank me and their decisions can be more impactful than mine. Uh, so if anything, you have to leave your ego at the door and somebody might have two years of experience and you have 10, it doesn't matter. Product always wins over some guy in London making decisions. And, and same thing with entrepreneurs, right? You're working with... Yeah, so, so in venture, I think it applies as well where you're working and backing like really young people um, who at the end of the day are doing the real job, right? Like I always joke that venture capital is a great imposter syndrome. You're not the entrepreneur. You're just along for the ride with them. Um, and then my career was luckily all in early stage technologies that, that scaled up. So understanding both the challenges of some of those technologies being adopted, the ways they can get adopted, how you think about direct sales, channel sales, partnerships, um, which I hopefully now share with my founders when, when I'm coaching them or talking to them at the board. Okay, and in, in all of that, like, you know, you guys with 2050 are focusing on sustainability and what we can say now, at least partially, like climate tech in itself. So what has been your, your driver into, to jump into uh, the climate and sustainable tech industry? Uh, any specific haha moment that you can recall or would define as such? Yeah, I think there's two. Um, I was climate curious, right? I think everybody kind of has it in the back of their head that something's going on um, that, that we caused and we can't seem to control. So the World Economic Forum organized a executive education session at Princeton, um, which you could apply for and I did, it was free. Um, and it was at the Andlinger Center for Energy and the Environment. And it was effectively a five-day crash course on the data, the science, um, and what I came out of that learning is there's this famous graph that shows that to get to one to the Paris levels, there's no one technology that solves it. It, it. You need to stack a bunch of them together. So that made me realize, wow, there's no simple way of getting out of this. Me driving a Tesla does not move the needle at all. And the second um, meeting there was a panel with these entrepreneurs 
One was uh, engineer number three at Tesla. One had been CTO of Sunrun. And there they were both actually, all, both of them were working on battery technologies. They had raised a seed round and their frustration was that they couldn't raise an A round. Um, this was three, four years ago. And the challenge was because they were both deep tech and climate tech, and there was nobody funding that at that point, right? Um, and, and so it made me realize that I could do the day job. I, 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 want, I meet and want to back people who want to change the world, but I could do it in a different way and properly change the world. Um, so that was one. Soon after that, I think, I actually read um, The Uninhabitable Earth. I don't know if you've read the book um, um, by the, new, the U.S. author, and that scared the living daylights out of me. I mean, that book does not provide solutions. It just provides fear. Um, and, and started then following and reading um, uh, Bill Gates's blog post, which is the opposite extreme, right? He's a techno-optimist. I'm like, wait, so the world's this bad, and there's technologies that I've met at Princeton that could solve it, and there's a tool to back technologies at early stage that can make them scale. It's called venture capital. It's what I do. Let's go do that. Um, but it's funny because when we first got started with 2150, we were really shy to use the word sustainability or impact because we didn't want to be seen as a philanthropic venture. We wanted to have impact and make money. And now, of course, climate tech is, uh, is the hottest thing in town. Everybody seems to be raising a climate tech fund or investing into it, including private equity and crossover funds. Um, but good, we need, we need more people on the mission. We need more money. Um, but that was my personal uh, voyage. Did you see any uh, big difference like between the US and EU way of approaching all of that? Uh, and I'm, you know, before going into the more like the, the, the context where 2150 is investing, um, I mean, you have like this, you know, bridge in between both sides of the Atlantic as uh, I was tr we try to, to build as well. Um, do you see any difference? Um, in the US and Europe, uh, I think there's more funding sources in the US, but that's been the case in venture capital in general. Um, but the funny thing is, let's take lower carbon, right? One of the most, most high profile uh, funds. Uh, Chris Saka has very vocally said that he loves Europe and he's actively investing in Europe because there's great innovation here. It, it reminds me of deep tech in general. We have the scientists, we have the academic centers, we need more of the funding. Um, and the second challenge um, is, is climate tech is going to include hardware and that scares away a large number of generalist funds. Um, so having uh, an appetite and understanding of how to scale up hardware. I think we need more of that in Europe as well. The flip side though, is that the regulate, regulatory push for the adoption of these technologies is much greater in Europe than it is in the US. Um, in the US, the, the battle for climate change is being fought at the city level because the federal government can't mandate rules across all the states. Well, it can mandate rules on some things, but it's, the EU can actually mandate rules across the 27 countries. Yeah. Um, and there's also cons consumer choice that's, that's I think, a, a lot more um, attuned to the challenge. Mm -hmm. And then big money choice where all these Nordic pensions are forcing all of their managers to implement sustainability into their strategies. So we have tailwinds behind Europe um, to accelerate the adoption. So let's do it. Um, so with 2150, uh, your focus is really like on urban environment where 
I mean, as I, I, I read on your website, more, where most of the, the world's CO2 uh, emissions and, and resource waste are arising. Can you give us uh, your overview of the uh, urban landscape today? Which are the, the, the sectors slash categories which has, have the biggest impact in terms of uh, waste, CO2 emission, and by consequent um, you know, climate change? And, and where do you see uh, that solution are the most needed? Good. So maybe a bit of background as to why I ended up focusing on the urban environment. Um, so after the Princeton event uh, that I mentioned, I spent about a year trying to understand what I call, I call it the vector of attack. What's the surface area that's big and bad and where you can have the impact in the shortest amount of time. And yeah, listen, we need to fund all these crazy technologies that will be deployed in 10 years time and have the potential to suck CO2 out of the air or modify bacteria to produce um, replacement for petrochemicals, that's great, but we need to start sucking down carbon today. Um, and I ended up realizing that the built environment is big, bad, and growing, but it's also the place where there is technologies that can be deployed today that can start having an effect today. And there's a fantastic quote that's become like or, or, or a battle cry. The UN Secretary General at a, a conference last year said the following phrase, cities are where the climate battle will largely be won or lost. And interesting stat, cities represent 1% of the inhabitable land in the planet, but they house 50% of the world's population, going up to two-thirds. They consume the vast majority of the world's resources and energy, and they produce the vast majority of the world's waste. So a city like London requires 127 times its size to feed it and power it. So if you, if you start by deploying technology in the city, it will have a ripple effect across the whole rest of the planet. Um, so yeah, for us, the thesis is making the urban environment cities um, sustainable. And for us, that we call it the urban stack. That means the, these interconnected layers of the materials that you use, the pipes that flow in, water, energy, how you build, which is a massively inefficient process, how we heat and cool our buildings, which consumes Cooling your house consumes half of the energy needed for your for your um, for your home in the U.S. Um, then how we move things in and out of the cities, and finally how we keep um, urban inhabitants healthy, safe, and secure. And so, we, yes, it's a vertical, but I always joke it's the world's largest vertical that we invest into. So, out of this this, uh, this stack uh, that you that you mentioned, I mean, in terms of like uh, solution and implementation of those solution, where are we at today? And in a way, what needs to be deployed at scale? I mean, which one are those uh, those solution? I know it's very very large. I mean, the stack is like covering almost everything in the in the city, as you as you mentioned. But um, do you see like any like proportion between like tech software solution or nature-based solution? Uh, tell us a bit more about that. So, so our, our um, filter is this urban stack, but within that urban stack, we're actually fairly thesis-driven. So we do these problem set deep dives, and that educates us as to what, why it's a problem and how it can be solved. And that helps us then go find technologies that can solve it. Um, so listen, the two biggest problems in the urban environment is one, our human addiction to cement and concrete. We are literally pouring it like water and it's 8% of world CO2 emissions. So as a country, it would be the third largest country after the US and China. And it's um, number one consumer of concrete in the world is China. But in the next 
10 years, India surpasses China. And then you think about where concrete is going to be poured over the next 30 years. It's Lagos, Nigeria. It's Dar al Salaam. It's these new mega cities that don't yet exist. So we need to tackle the embodied carbon problem of concrete before those cities start being built. Um, so that was a problem set. We spent some time understanding what makes cement and concrete so bad. Then we drilled down into technologies that could fix it. Um, and through that have found a number of companies working on replacing Portland cement or changing the process. And the first investment that we made was actually in, in that space, a company called Carbon Cure. So that's problem set number one. Problem set number two is harder. It's steel. Um, steel is 7% of world CO2 emissions. Um, there's this famous green steel factory in Sweden that costs hundreds of millions of, um, of euros. That's not something we should be investing in as a 270 million euro venture capital fund. So we're still, we know the problem and we know what causes it. We're still trying to figure out what technologies can solve it. Um, so, and we've done a number of, of other deep dives. So I'm personally right now finishing a deep dive on cooling where a lot of people focus on heating as a problem. Cooling is actually worse. And guess what? Cooling is going to accelerate as people, well, as middle-class incomes rise, um, but more importantly, as the world gets hotter. It's not that people will want to be cooler. They'll have to be cooler to survive. And if we cool the world with the current technology and the current refrigerants, it will not end well. Um, so I'm, I, I now understand the problem. I've, I've been looking at it. The energy consumption from um, from cooling is going to outstrip capacity uh, around the world. The Indian grid cannot support the billions, the 1.2 billion air conditioning units are expected to ship by 2040. The refrigerants that we use are really bad, like 9,000 times worse than CO2. Um, and that's being changed by regulation. And the average AC unit in market today is massively inefficient in, in its energy use. Um, and so how do you change that? What innovation is happening around that? And uh, the reality is there's a few startups working on it, but there's very little capital focusing on it. And do, do you see like any like solution emerging out of labs and are really at the lab level still? Or is it like you mentioned that only like three potential like horses that you could bet on as the, the three startups that you uh, that you mentioned? Yeah, yeah. So the output of the output of this process is actually a, a target list. Right. So um, and I've talked to scientists at MIT, uh, scientists at Cambridge, um, scientists at natural, natural, national research labs working on some of these innovations. There was actually a competition um, sponsored by the Indian government uh, that was effectively the X Prize for cooling, uh, which is called the Global Cooling Prize. And that had some interesting innovation as well. So there are people working on it. It's just who's actually backing who's actually backing the technologies, uh, and you know, it's our friends at uh, Breakthrough Energy. It's uh, the folks at Energy Impact Partners. Um, it's so the, the the people who get the problem is a is a small subset. Yeah. So let's zoom out a little bit out of those uh, you know more specific solution instead. Of like, I mean, what if we take like a you know more like a higher level view here like uh what needs to happen to to have our cities in a way like more carbon free or more sustainable how long is it going to take like 127 years as you have on your on your website till uh, 2150 or maybe 
you can tell us a bit more about the the, the situation in the UK and uh, EU slash US level. I mean, is it like what is blocking right now to really accelerate uh, the implementation of those solutions to uh, to reach that goal in terms of uh, the urban environment? Uh, is it uh, new policies that needs to be put in place, uh, lack of fundings, uh, maybe lack of like startups and tech available, as you just mentioned before? All of it. Um, so I think first, <laughs> the realization that that the built environment is one of the biggest problems. So we always think about aviation and shipping and all these dirty cars as the problem. They're tiny compared to concrete and steel, right? Um, so first of all, making people aware that the climate change battle happens in the cities. Um, secondly, understanding those problem sets, uh, like concrete alone is fascinating, like the number of startups in that space just in the last two years, yeah. and we need more innovation. Um, then funding, of course. Um, so more people like us focusing on that space and, th and there's more and more. I know of three funds being raised in Europe right now focusing on urban sustainability, which is awesome. Um, but then other types of funding as well, because the stuff that we're going to be funding, some of it will have to be hardware. Some of it will require factories. And I don't want my money, equity money, to necessarily go to building CapEx-heavy um, factories or equipment. So how do you find... Um, asset financing alongside equity financing to help these companies scale. And that is a company, a firm in the U.S. called Generate Capital, which does that really well for large-scale projects. We need a Generate Capital of Europe. Actually, Generate just came into London. But we need more people who understand how to finance these products and the yield on them, which, by the way, is pretty attractive, to help them scale up. Uh, and it's, I don't think it's going to be a typical bank. I think it's specialist um, firms. We need more catalytic capital for some of these technologies to be tested out. And so Breakthrough, Breakthrough launched the Catalyst Fund, which does that, mm -hmm. hydrogen and ca carbon capture. And they did that with the UK government and another one with the EU government. So that's a, a great new type of funding as well. Uh, and then finally, we need regulation. And the single regulation that could actually push this is taxing the embodied carbon in buildings. So uh, the EU just passed a new regulation that now applies the European carbon tax to shipping and buildings, but it only applies to the energy consumption of buildings. It doesn't apply to all the carbon that got used making that building. Um, so by doing that, you now start driving action from the people that are doing that construction for them to look for uh, lower carbon solutions or lower, lower carbon technologies. And that accelerates the deployment of the stuff that I'm backing. Um, and, and then all, all the initiatives, like uh, there's one in New York that incentivizes landlords to make their buildings more energy efficient. Um, but year on year, that to prove that they've taken action to lower it over time. France has a similar law called uh, Elon. Um, and and that's, a, that's a great initiative, right? Because, yes, we've talked a lot about, about new buildings. But in Europe, the biggest problem that we have is our existing stock. Like I'm sitting in a building that got uh, that got built in the 1800s. It's massively inefficient. And my landlady is not, not going to put in double pane windows and a, a heat pump. It's, I'm not going to pay for it. So how do you incentivize retrofit of existing buildings to make it more sustainable? And that's a regulatory push. 
Okay, so I mean, in terms of timeline, uh, we all know that 21, you know, 2050. Sorry, I, I got confused here, but 2050 is kind of like the 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 the, the hard uh, line that we have here to keep 1.5 degrees. So it's 27 years. Um, what's the? I mean, all of those change can they really happen uh, within that time frame, or uh, you see it like with a way longer horizon? Yeah, well, so we call ourselves 2150 because we wanted to think longer term, but also because the real estate industry talks about 100-year assets when, they, when they're building things. And my argument to them is that your assets not going to exist in 100 years unless you start taking action now. Um, but the really scary part, the deeper you go into, the, into climate, is it's not 2050 that we should be thinking about. It's 2030, right? So we have... Um, eight years to reduce by half the amount of gigatons that we emit. Eight. And by the way, the curve is not going down, it's still going up. Um, so the enormity of that challenge can sometimes be depressing. So how do we deploy these technologies faster? And that's what, why we focus on, on this space, because this is where we can start deploying technologies and carbon reducing technologies today. Um, that can hopefully start changing the, the, the shape of the curve. If you've looked at the IPCC report, they have a graph where the curve literally needs to shift at like a super acute angle now. Um, so um, my first concern is, can we get there by 2030? And if we get there, we have a chance of getting it 2050. Um, and, you know, we are running out of time. Um, so actually, we were having this debate yesterday. At the same time, we have to think about resilience technologies. Mm -hmm. So we've been talking about mitigation technologies. What yeah. if we don't get there? What will we need? And it's a really hard conversation to have as a venture capital fund, because if we get there, the value of those technologies might be zero. Correct. If we don't get there, the technology might be super, the value might be super high. But it's, a, I mean, yeah, it's, you're, it's, it's, it's a pretty dire situation because you really hope we do get there, and yet we might not. Makes sense. So let's uh, let's go into the, the specific of uh, 2150. Uh, Can you tell us a bit more about like the, the story, uh, the genesis of it? Uh, you already like uh, mentioned that a little bit uh, prior to the, the beginning of the interview. Um, I mean, how did you meet your, uh, your co-founders? Uh, what was this initial gap that you already mentioned a little bit uh, and that led to your to your thesis uh, behind 2150? Yeah, it's funny because we all came together in, in a haphazard way um, and we're all kind of mission aligned um, until we came together. So it starts with Mikkel, my, my, my partner in, in Copenhagen. So Mikkel is an entrepreneur. Uh, his last startup happens to have been a real estate private equity fund that's now 14 billion um, uh, euros. That's been the most successful real estate fund in the world, actually, for the last couple of years um, called NREP. And, uh, and NREPS built these amazing sustainable neighborhoods across the Nordics. Um, uh, actually, they built one in, in uh, the north of Copenhagen called Nordhaven, and the zip code for Nordhaven is 2150. So that's our legacy. Um, okay. And Nordhaven has been called the most sustainable neighborhood in the world. That's awesome. It's great. Um, but his realization was that one neighborhood at a time is not going to move the needle. One city at a time is not going to move the needle. So as he became chairman instead of CEO, and he was thinking about how to scale it out, he was thinking it's not building by building, but it's technology across millions of buildings. That probably means venture capital. What I'm good at is getting people and money together. Who do I know in my network that understands technology and venture? Um, 
Then um, Jacob Bro, who had been the chief product officer at Rocket, had actually been working with with a, a company called Edge Technologies, um, which has built some of the most sustainable buildings in the world. They actually retrofitted all these technologies that make them super efficient, um, and he's famous for that. And they were, he was working with him on, on some product projects. And through Cocoon, through Edge, he ended up meeting Mikkel, and they geeked out uh, and and, uh, and uh, started talking about what would become 2150. In came Christian Yolk, um, my other partner, who came at it from a industrial background. He'd been doing digitization and sustainability inside um, industrial companies that provide some of the construction material. Um, and he actually chaired the largest sustainability lobbying organization in the Nordics. And then came me, who was the venture capitalist. Um, uh, and, and so we, we met a bunch of times. We talked about it. Um, like I told you, we were shy about using that word in the early days and, and, and realized that we were all mission aligned. This is what we wanted to do with our, with our time um, and our passion. And so we, we started going to market for, for the fund. And surprisingly, we had a product that the financial markets wanted. So we ended up raising this massive 270 million euro fund in a year. Um, and we're now 12. We've kept on scaling the team. We have an amazing set of people um, from banking and sustainability and uh, emerging markets uh, between London and Copenhagen. Exciting. So what do you offer to the, the, the different founders and, and company that you invest in? Um, and maybe what are the, the, the challenge that you, you see that uh, when you invest, like that you try to, to help them, to, to support them, to go to the, to the next step, the next round uh, and kind of like scale? Uh, if you, did you identify any, any challenges that uh, they can have maybe? Yeah, I think I mean, that comes partly from my experience uh, and Nicole uh, who's on our team as well, who's been a venture capitalist for, for a long time. We've been through that voyage before, right? but also the operational experience that a number of us have where we've actually been inside co tech companies that we're scaling. So hopefully there's some gray hair or in my case, lack of hair that, that can be shared with the founders. <laughs> but money is now not the issue. There's, there's plenty of money out there. It's what we offer them is acceleration to market. And the way we do that um, is our investor base includes um, builders, owners, and managers of 430 million square feet of real estate um, that want us to feed them technologies that they can deploy into their assets. So what we do is we have a team actually that we've invested into who does business development effectively on behalf of our portfolio, goes to all these investors and says, okay, what's your problem? You need, um, you need, a, a, you need, uh, technology to make your heating more efficient, right? You want low embodied carbon concrete. Um, you're looking for a new wood technology to build a, a tall building out of wood. Okay, And then we flip around to the market and we find those technologies, some of which are a portfolio, some of which are not. Mm -hmm. um, so what we've promised, and I think we're delivering on, is acceleration of commercial traction, which is why we don't invest in two brilliant minds in a PowerPoint. They're not ready for that commercial traction. Okay, so can you give us maybe some uh, some example uh, of uh, your previous investment? Uh, I mean, what make the, the the them special? Was it the team, the market, the tech, and how do you source those uh, those founders? You you said that uh, you go actively uh, to find them. Do you have any other uh, other you know sourcing uh, 
pipeline and and who should uh, come to pitch you? So yeah, so we want the majority of our um, deal flow to be outbound, so thesis driven. Um, and and I, I talked about the example of the deep dive on concrete and cement mm -hmm. um, that led to an investment into carbon cure. And and to be fair, we we were allowed to invest into carbon cure um, because we showed up educated, because we understood the problem and how they were solving it. It was a super hot round. It was Breakthrough Energy and Microsoft's billion-dollar climate fund and Amazon's $2 billion climate fund. And this new guy in town from London um, that had a weird number as a name. Um, <laughs> and, and, and Bob, the founder, he's like, yeah, you guys showed up. You showed up educated and prepared, and I knew you could help. And so that's why we feel that being outbound and educated will make us better investors through the due diligence process and as a company scales. Um, that uh, concrete and cement deep dive has led to a number of other conversations, and at some point we will likely do another investment in the space. Um, I talked about the, the cooling um, deep dive that I just finished and how that's allowed me to go talk to all these labs and, and, and co companies working on, on the space, uh, and to some of the incumbents as well, um, to try and find the company I want to bet on. And then sometimes there's stuff that we don't know is a big problem that ends up being a big problem. So uh, we invest in a company called Amped Energy out of Hong Kong. Uh, what Amped does is it replaces uh, diesel generators in construction sites with batteries. Okay, uh, so sounds logical, but it turns out diesel generators are really nasty. They run in this thing called red diesel and it emits really bad particulate matter. When you think about air pollution, you probably think about the lorry and you think about the cars, Nobody thinks about construction sites. Yeah. The construction sites in London generate 35% of what's called PM10 and 15% of what's called PM2.5, the really bad air pollution. Yeah. And the source of that air pollution is that diesel generator that's running all the time and that's used to actually power the trains. So when we started looking at the problem, we realized how big it was and why it made total sense to, to fix it. Uh, we re realized that European regulation is already forcing um, constructors in the UK, for example, uh, red diesel gets banned from this year. So that's going to cost the construction industry 400 million pounds a year. They're looking for solutions and AMP provides one. So as an example where, in this case, we were introduced by another, uh, another fund um, uh, um, that had been looking at it, uh, where our network introduces us to a company and we quickly understand the problem because for us, the filters are... Is it a big problem and that this technology solves? Can it scale? In other words, we, we need something that we feel we can actually accelerate into the market, like I talked about before. Can, we, um, can it uh, have an impact? Can we quantify what scaling will re reflect in terms of like, sustainability impact? And why, why us, right? What, if we're on the cap table, what will change versus some other generalist fund being on the cap table? Um, and so, yeah, just a couple of other investments that we've made. Um, we looked at the carbon accounting space pretty deeply, ended up investing in, uh, in Normative out of Sweden. Um, we uh, found, or actually we were invited into a round uh, also by Breakthrough in the U.S. in a company that uses a chemical product um, developed by a, a scientist in the U.S. to seal a building, really low cost. And mm -hmm. sealing a building is the most impactful way 
to um, make the to make the building more sustainable. Uh, it's called Aerosteel. Um, it's it's a brilliant company. It's one that has gigaton potential at scale. Uh, it's uh, already pretty well deployed across the U.S. and and has partnerships in Europe. So yeah, so it's 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 uh, us getting smart or people that know what we care about inviting us to look at companies together. So which sectors are the most promising for you today in terms of like what I called uh, ICR or impact cash returns? Uh, I mean, meaning by, you know, building impactful companies while creating highly profitable business uh, uh, with a specific, uh, you know, view on the urban environment. Any underdogs or subsectors area that you're excited about it uh, in that landscape that you didn't, uh, you know, uh, share with us so, so far? Yeah, so I, I've been using carbon cost. Um, one dollar into this company or one dollar to that company, where am I going to have that li- the highest carbon leverage? Uh, I like ICR. I might start borrowing that. Um, I mean, th- these were unsexy sectors when we got started, right? Concrete and cement. And now every climate tech fund has a concrete and cement uh, investment. Uh, and, there's, and there's more coming, which is great. Uh, we, need, we need more solutions. Um, even the big, the big cement companies themselves are claiming they have green products, which I don't really believe, but whatever. Um, so that, that was a dirty space that very few people were looking at and then just took off in the last two years. Um, my pet peeve right now, and the reason I keep bringing it up over and over again, is cooling. That's a massive problem that nobody's really been looking at. Um, and and how, do, how do we solve that? There, the, the challenge... Um, the other challenges that we're kind of beginning to look at right now is hydrogen is hard for us to do. Um, it's an infrastructure play, not a venture capital play. Um, should we do something as crazy as nuclear fusion? Probably not, um, but it's a binary one. If it works, it solves our problems. Uh, but that, I mean, the joke always is um, one more nuclear fusion company. Uh, and, and I actually, I love and admire the the, the, the people that actually go and, and back some of those technologies. <clears throat> um, a, a problem set that we're beginning to think about is uh, how do we make proteins closer to humans? Mm-hmm. When you start thinking about how much our legumes or strawberries have to travel to get to our Tesco or our local shop, it's nonsensical. The problem is that building giant greenhouses next to cities it's not that much better. You need to cool them. You need a lot of power for the lighting. Um, so what can we find that makes those much more efficient and allows us to make proteins closer to humans? Um, so it's a space we're just beginning to investigate right now. So if anybody listening to this is working in that space, um, give me a shout out. Um, and, then, and, uh, and then actually the, the, the systemic interdependence of some of these solutions. So uh, the world goes electric. So my, my, my joke always is, what would Norway do? So when you look at the technology, um, compared to what's happening in Norway around it, so EV, uh, Norway is over 50% EV. The problem is actually the network, the infrastructure support over 50% EV. You cannot charge your Tesla on a Friday afternoon in Oslo. There's just no charge points available. So as you start thinking about the world going electric, how do you create charging networks and software to make it more efficient to power the lorries and the buses and all the cars now coming out that need to be charged um, in a different way than how we go to the gas station today and get full. Yeah. 
So those interesting like inter interrelated systemic challenges. Um, and another uh, and last last area that I think is interesting and very few people are thinking about is um, is waste. Um, I mean the the literally mountains of waste that we generate, even the the stuff that we think is recyclable but is not. Like your Oatly, which you buy because you think it's good for the world, that Tetra Pak for, with Oatly is not recyclable because it has plastic at the top. Um, so how do we deploy technologies both for the material side of it, but then on the end side of it to make sure that stuff that can get reused does get reused? Okay, so to, to your opinion, uh, which are the, the solutions that uh, you believe make zero sense uh, whatsoever and sounds like to be a waste of time and, and resource and probably just like a, a green climate washing uh, rhino, if you have a couple of examples that you could share without naming it, if you, uh, if you prefer. <laughs> but I don't, think, I don't think it doesn't make sense. I just don't think it's something we would back. Okay. Um, but um, so green banks for example right so where you use a specific neo bank and then they offset your carbon um it's a feel-good solution because i feel good because i'm buying carbon offsets based on what i spend but for it to have the gigaton level impact that we need to have you need a lot of customers for the bank um so for, back to the kind of uh, carbon per dollar i don't think it's the best place for me to be putting my money Mm -hmm. um, but at least it educates people and it gets them to take action. Um, I, I think from a financial product perspective, something like a green pension fund would actually make more sense, right? We actually are deploying billions in, in to, in to, into the problem. But um, we, we haven't played in the space. I think it's too CapEx heavy anyways, um, but micromobility is a, is a challenging space. Um, Yes, using a bike um, or using a scooter is better than taking your car. Um, um, but you remember that picture from China where there was like literally the mountains of bikes um, that were just being thrown away? Not a good outcome. Um, but, but so it's just a, we've decided that uh, for now we, we will not play in the micro mobility space. Um, and then now I'm, I'm stuck on like thinking about others. Um, um, well, it's not greenwashing, it's a necessary solution, but I think it's also uh, a challenge and you can have a massive philosophical debate around this, but carbon capture, mm -hmm. like that Icelandic um, de deployment that just happened that got all the press, that's pretty expensive cost per ton of carbon. <clears throat> so I'm pretty interested in carbon capture, but I think the model is a lower cost um, distributed system rather than giant air sucking machines that can only exist in places where you have clean energy, uh, like cheap, clean energy mm -hmm. um, for, it to, for it to actually work. Right. So nothing against Climeworks. I'm just saying I don't believe in that model. I, I merge in technologies that are usually still in the lab that can actually drive carbon capture at a much lower cost and a much smaller footprint. So, okay. Um, so one of the greenwashing, but some those were some kind of critiques that we've had in, in internal debates around some of the technologies. Now, I think it's always interesting to uh, to hear that uh, you know, on the, at least with the, the VC lens and uh, perspective, because as you mentioned, uh, not every 
think is fundable by uh, by VCs and shouldn't uh, and uh, hearing what uh, how do you guys stand it's always uh, interesting so couple of last question before uh, the end of this part uh, part one uh, in terms of impact and you already uh, mentioned that a little bit but like how do you measure impact I mean do you have any specific like process framework uh, do you rely on, uh, on on a bunch of like scientists and experts to validate the, the tech uh, and the impact um, I know that you and you mentioned that uh, before you guys do your own deep dive uh, but Do you have any like criterias uh, except the gigaton uh, in itself uh, that needs to be you know removed or avoided uh, by the implementation of that technology at scale, uh, or maybe any social impact? Yeah. Um, so yeah, I mean, or 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 North Star is is that we're hunting for gigacorns, uh, and it's this word I made up, which has now actually been used by a bunch of others, which I think is cool, but. Um, gigaton companies that can mitigate a gigaton of co2 but also be commercially viable and listen these are massively mythical creatures like one technology one company having that impact um is 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 going to be hard um but at least it tells us the, the level of ambition that we want to have so that was cute when we got started to say that but then we quickly realized that nobody in the team knows how to actually measure even a, a megaton or even a ton um Uh, and that learning the math, while not impossible, was probably going to take us a long time. So we decided early on that we needed to go hire somebody who knew how to do that and actually was passionate about doing that. And it actually took us a while. We spent quite a bit of time finding the right person, which we just announced this week that joined the fund. His name is Peter Hirsch. Um, he's based in London, and he's our head of sustainability. And Peter spent the last, what is it, six years at the European Bank for Reconstruction, literally doing LCA analysis for all these massive infrastructure projects that the, that the EBRD was backing. He lives and breathes this stuff, right? He, um, so he took our conceptual framework of the impact one and a half and has now made it into a methodology that we apply to each investment. And we will be talking more about that publicly and sharing it actually with others. Um, and, uh, and, and when we talk to climate tech funds, some have, some have pretty strict methodologies, others have kind of none, but we, we felt we want to have a structured methodology. So that, that does um, measure carbon, but we also focus on uh, resilience and, and impact. And, and so it might be tons of carbon removed. It might be millions of liters of clean water saved, but it also might be health outcomes of, of urban citizens. Um, and so we track, we agree on those metrics when we invest with the founders. And they agree in our term sheet to report those to us alongside financial metrics. And we agree in our legal documents to our LPs, to our investors, to report it back to them. So yeah, it's very, it, it, we, we will quantify it um, and we want to quantify it and it will be more than just carbon. Carbon's one of them, but there's, there will be others that are company specific. Yeah. Okay, thank you. Because I know it's always, uh, you know, the, the, the challenging part of it is like how to really match uh, data, reality, early stage and goals that uh, we put for the in the thesis for the for the fund. But uh, thank you for sharing that. So what's next for 2150? Listen, we're still we're still looking for amazing technologies that can have have a massive impact. Um, we I mean, deal flow is is uh, crazy slash amazing. Um, and uh, and it, that feels good, the fact that A, there's all these amazing entrepreneurs working on it and B, that they might let us work with them. Um, so 
for now, it's building out the team. Uh, we're still hiring. It's finding more uh, impactful companies. It's helping our existing portfolio scale and raise the next round. Um, and there's some interesting developments around that as well. Um, and and it's, it's helping educate others who are starting on this climate voyage. And that's some of my friends at Generalist Funds who are climate curious, like I was a couple of years ago. It's uh, other climate funds that just got started or have been around and want to co-invest with us. Um, it's having conversations with policymakers um, in different geographies about why innovation in this space matters. And so we, we, we want to be a lot more vocal on the policy side because policy will be a driver of demand for the technologies that we back. Okay, so what's uh, my, my last question here for this part of the interview? So what's your uh, personal view on the climate crisis? Are we doomed, as uh, I always ask? I mean, what would you say to people who feel you know, demoralized by all the terrible news, reading those books that uh, sometimes can be very negative uh, as well, uh, and seeing all of those you know, already visible consequences of uh, climate change? Yeah, as I, as I said earlier, right, the deeper you go into climate, the more depressing it could be, just the enormity of the challenge. Um, like I said, we have eight years to half or gigaton outputs, um, and we're running out of time. But I'm still maybe a, too much of a techno-optimist. I, I still think that there's increasing amounts of brilliant people, mission-aligned people, and money going after it that at COP26, I think the legacy of COP26 will be the commitment by companies more than governments to actually take action. So the net zero pledges, the large, large financial institutions committing to this, um, giant private equity firms raising sustainability funds, that will trickle through to fund the innovation that we need. And then hopefully regulation that drives their, their, their adoption. Am I hopeful that we half it by 2030 and get to net zero by 2050? Mm, pretty skeptical, but I do think that not trying is not an option. And yeah. so I feel pretty enthused every day to know that I'm doing a job that I love, which is finding amazing, brilliant people that want to change the world. And if it works, it'll make a better place for my kids and their kids. So that's what keeps me up and it kind of allows me to wake up, not depressed in the mornings. So how can the, the community can, uh, of listeners, investors, founders around the world listening to the, to the show today can help you? Yeah, so we're looking for deals. We're looking for impactful technologies that can scale. Um, we're looking for gigacorns. Uh, we're looking for co-investors. We have syndicated in every single deal, whether we led or followed. Um, we feel that more people around the table or mission line will help make that company better. Um, so we, we want to have more co-investors. And finally, at some point, we will be raising a new fund. So people who want to back us as well, um, those are important too. Uh, and I think the, the fact that this podcast has, has, has a community is the, the important part, right? There's actually enough people interested in this subject to listen to this random conversation we just had. So any question I should have asked you uh, and I did not? Any question? Why I'm wearing this black thing on my arm? And the answer is because I've... <laughs> During COVID I, and during lockdown, I tore my wrist um, in a stupid accident. So uh, I now have to wear something that, that looks like a, I don't know, a piece of jewelry. So if people see it flashing in the video, that's why. <laughs> Hopefully you're going to get uh, get better soon, Christian. So thank you so much. Good luck for the for the, the rest of the, of the day. And... <laughs>
<laughs> Thank you so much. Have a great rest of the day. Bye bye. Hi, it's Guillaume again. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed the show. As I said, do not hesitate to share an episode with a friend. Also, if you value the work we do for the climate tech ecosystem, here is how you can contribute to it. Today, I'm asking for your support and a donation or sponsorship to make the work of our self-funded team more viable. Even a small contribution means a lot to us. In any case, I will invite you to subscribe to our channels and visit our website startupbscamp.org to discover more episodes like this one and get your membership to access all our members' exclusive content. So remember, all of this is possible because of your support and donation. And we want you to be part of this collective movement against climate change. Let's keep in touch and I hope you will enjoy our next show with us.